Welcome. You're listening to another episode of AML Conversations, where we sit down with some of the brightest minds in the financial industry to explore topical matters around financial crime and compliance. We hope you enjoy this discussion and please be sure to subscribe for more. Hey, Dan, I saw your session this morning on uh, priorities, and there's like four other sessions at the conference uh, today and tomorrow that are looking at the FinCEN priorities. We obviously don't yet have a regulation. So what's going to mean from a implementation standpoint? But I was taken by some of your comments this morning, and we've talked offline a little bit about this, about the value proposition. So first, talk about the value proposition about having priorities, and then let's talk about, we're not going to guess what the implementation is going to be, but sort of what will be some of the challenges for your clients? Okay. Well, it's good to have priorities. We've never really had them, at least not in any kind of an official sense before. So now, at least, we have an idea of what the government thinks is important in terms of AML compliance. So, so you know, I was talking a little bit this morning about having an alignment, you right. know, so that there's a, you know, meeting the minds between what the government thinks is important along with what the industry thinks is important, which I think is really, like, necessary and, and, uh, and, and critical to make this all work. In terms of uh, clients... I think there, there's been a fair amount of head scratching, right. uh, almost from the beginning, about like, so what do we do with these things? Yeah, uh, and I, I think it's compounded somewhat by the number of priorities and the fact that they're all of equal weight. Right. So, so there's no priorities within the priorities, and and FinCEN and the banking agencies were, you know, they they suggested back in June that, you know, don't sit on your hands with this stuff, start thinking through how you're going to incorporate it into your programs. And I think that some of my clients are have been doing that. Right. And, and areas in particular where I think they're impacted would be like with the risk assessment, yep. you know, documenting exposure or I suppose non-exposure. Uh, and then to the extent you have exposure, you know, wanting to make sure that your, your controls are adequate right. to, to address the risks. And I, I think I could also see, I also expect, to see a correlation with SAR filings, that we'd see an uptick in SAR filings in the impacted priority areas. That's an interesting point, because it seemed to be tied, like you said, to risk assessment, to SAR filings, to overall AML infrastructure. One of the things that struck me, so the backstory that, that I heard, and it could be totally anecdotal, was that some groups that were pushing for the priorities pushed for them in the hopes of, not that they wouldn't have to look at anything else, but that they would, could really de-emphasize other things. That was one thing that I thought was interesting. And the second part was something that was said uh, this morning, uh, one of the other panelists, uh, that does that mean that we're now going to be looking at what's the actual crime versus the suspicious activity? Mm. That seems to be more of a, not even a hot take. That To mm. me, I'm, I wonder if that is even feasible, given what we both know about the SAR infrastructure. But what was your understanding about why this was? Outside of we want to know what government thinks is important. That's always been the case, right? Yeah, yeah, but yeah. this is, not to my mind, let's not worry about elder abuse or other issues, but these are things that the government, national security, law enforcement, all the agencies said, these are sort of the major drivers of the movement of illicit funds, but we'd like you to spend more time and resources on that. Yeah, and, and I, I, the thing is, it, it is, I think there's a tension because if you spend more time and resources on these eight areas, you're going to have to spend less time on other areas. Sure. And what we don't really know, what we don't have from the government at least, is an idea of the other areas where they can roll back, if there are any. Right. 
my my concern, my fear, you know, what I expressed this morning is that there really is no rollback in anything else. Right. That you've got to continue to do everything you've been doing, and you've got to do a good job in these areas. Right. And you know, the the real key will be, you know, when this is finally fully implemented, which is going to be a, a good bit down the road, right. what what do the regulators look for when they come and examine your institution? Yeah. If you do a good job, in other words, let's say you do a good job on the eight on the eight priorities, but, you know, you, you maybe a not-so-good job with respect to technical compliance to some of the rules. CIP, maybe. Yeah. CIP, yeah, maybe. Right. So what does that turn into right. in terms of how they measure effectiveness, and does that result in you know, supervisory or even enforcement actions. We don't really know, and, right. and I thought that some of the speakers on the panel this morning, uh, Andrew Sharon in particular, made a good observation that this is not going to happen overnight. That right. This is going to be iterative and it's going to be a process, and probably a few years before we really kind of get an idea of what this ultimately looks like. You know, that's so true, and then I think, to your point about linking things, all of this is connected, right? It's the, the request for information on risk assessment. It's on AML infrastructure, on effectiveness. So it all has to be, it, to be logical and rational, it has to all work together. So that, by definition, is going to happen tomorrow. It could result in some reduction in focus where there won't be criticisms. You know, we talked about, my words, not the panels, tiered SARS, like for structuring. You know, you, you just, your, your system pulls out potential structuring, don't fail the narrative, just send it in. So that could be a, both a cost saver and a, and a focus. Law enforcement's still getting the information, but you're not spending a lot of ton of time and energy. But it seems like everything has to be linked for this to be effective at all. Yeah, I, I think it's very telling, too, that you know when you look at the agenda for this conference, you just mentioned it. Yeah. How many of these sessions, in one way or another, implicate the, the priorities? Right. Like you, I think you said four? I think four, yeah. And, and, and probably some others sure. where, where it's going to come up which shows you how important these priorities are and right. how holistically it has to be viewed because it really impacts uh, various aspects of your entire program. Right. You right. know, so I, I think, I think you know, SARS is, is a great example that came up, you know, during our discussion right. of where reform is needed. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there's probably too many SARS filed, too many SARS that just are of marginal or no interest to law enforcement, but it consumes resources to produce them. So if we could crack that nut, yeah. that alone would be uh, you know, a big step forward, I think, in making this whole regime more effective and definitely less costly and burdensome. Yeah, and, and again, to that point, there is studies required under the same law about the effectiveness of SARS and BSA and threshold, all that kind of stuff. So all that stuff has to be analyzed as well. And so even though these reports will come out different times, you know, I think, um, you know, we heard this morning from a Treasury representative about real estate, that that's coming out at some, all these things are connected. I mean, it, it just are. And if you look at the priorities, you know, it's, it's corruption, it's human trafficking, it's fraud, both garden variety and obviously complicated frauds. It's domestic terrorism, international transactional crime. Uh, I think the only one that sort of struck me is, I get it, but I don't know how much the banks can do is proliferation finance. Yeah. That seems to be, not, it's not a stretch because it's an issue, but all the other um, uh, priorities to me were sort of logical that you and I as AML people that have been mm -hmm. doing this forever, we would have come up with probably seven of them. Yes. Know, in yeah. terms of the big the big ticket categories. Yeah, I mean, that was one of, one of the observations I had when I first saw them is that 
other than proliferation financing, right, right. which I agree is important, but it's probably not going to affect that many institutions. No. But but all of the other areas are areas that you would have expected to be there. I didn't think that there were really uh, any any surprises. And you know, in terms of the, the connectedness of all this, I I think that the AMLA, the entire statute really is a swing at the fences on yeah. the part of Congress right. to try to revamp a, a regime that is struggling to keep up with the times. And I think the priorities, Section 6101, I think they are really the, the heart of this in a lot of ways because how the way that they affect all the other areas and, and, and so many of the other provisions that are in, in the statute. You, you know, that's so true. You know, you and I have both been around since the Patriot Act, even before that. So this is clearly the most potentially the most dramatic change to the infrastructure ever. And I give Congress a lot of credit. A, it was fairly bipartisan, which never happens anymore. Not these days. But B, as I've said many times, the studies are connected to strategies. So the studies in the old days of the Bankers Association, we'd want to study and kick it down the road. That's not the case now. You do a study, but there has to be a strategy to tail end of it. But they're all, as you say, interconnected. So whether it's risk assessments, SAR reviews, um, thresholds, value proposition, innovations, I mean, all those are tied together. So, you know, I, like you, I give them a lot of credit for doing this. Yeah, and I, I, I've made the observation, others have as well, that, you know, this is the most significant AML uh, legislation since the Patriot Act. But I would go a step further. I would say it's really the first true AML reform legislation. Absolutely. I can't think of another right. uh, statute right. that I would put into that category. And, you know, I, I wonder in terms of it, you know, hanging together pretty well, if part of the reason for that is that it was so long in coming. And, and you contrast yeah. it with the Patriot Act, right. which was passed five weeks after 9-11. Exactly, yeah. I mean, those were those were disparate yeah. bills that had all been kind of chunked together That's right. in, in a very hasty yeah. way without, yeah. without a lot of deliberation. Here, you had a lot of deliberation over a long period of time, and as you know, on a bipartisan basis. Right, yeah. And so we end up actually having legislation that's pretty coherent. So the um, uh, FinCEN has said, spelled it out several times, and uh, I think congressional report language says the same thing, that the priorities are going to show that not all priorities are the same in terms of impact on institutions. So a big bank might have this particular threat, small bank. So if they draft the regulations that way, that'll be good. But I think you raised it, and we talked about it just earlier in this conversation. If the regulators still say, okay, Dan, your client doesn't have a, an aggressive human trafficking uh, detection program, as opposed to having examples where they have filed SARS, that's going to sort of negate the value proposition here. So they really have to be careful yeah. about what the regulators end up overseeing, right? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, one of the, the fears I, I have with it is that it, this itself becomes a form of box checking. Yes. Where, you, you, you know, it's, it's a documentation exercise. Right. And, and, you know, documenting that you have done something, but, but documenting that you don't have exposure and it, 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 it's, it's kind of a shame if it, if it plays out that way, and that's all this becomes. Right. In other words, being able to just demonstrate to your regulator that you've thought about this stuff and you check the box. It could be so much more than that right. if it's implemented in a, in a different way. Yeah. But, but there, again, there has to be, you know, there has to be alignment on a lot of different fronts within the government. We say the government like it's a black box, right. but as you know, it's not. Yeah, yeah. You've got a lot of stakeholders here. So if there's if, if law enforcement's on the same page, the regulators, the regulators are on the same page with FinCEN, 
that that's the kind of uh, symmetry that I think you need here to make this really work. And then you know it, it has to, but you know it has to filter down the examiner. So we right. talked about that right. this morning. Yeah. If the examiners don't get the memo, and they're still examining banks exactly the way they were before this was enacted, then this really just does become an additive requirement. Right. It doesn't really accomplish what it was supposed to. As folks can tell, we are actually in the exhibit hall at the ACAMS conference, and uh, nobody got hurt with that last whatever it was that fell. We just want people to know that that's why you have the, uh, the noise behind us. The other issue, that, not issue, a question that came up was with the priorities, what impact, if any, would it have on de-risking financial inclusion? And it's an interesting issue. You and I both have been involved in various projects that have tried to address uh, inclusion. Um, but what's your what's your high level thought? Obviously, we don't know yet until these are out. Yeah. But you know, I think when we look at things like, um, uh, you know, I was in a session earlier today where they talked about Afghanistan and getting money there, and then people on the panel were saying, well, you know, we agree that that should be the goal. But remember, there's terrorist activity too, so we have to sort of do both. So it seems like priorities would be the same thing. If you're doing priorities, domestic terrorism, uh, are we not going to give loans to certain people? I think it'd still be case by case. But if a client says to you, is this going to change my onboarding process? What's, what's your initial take without knowing what the reg is going to say yet? Yeah, yeah, that, that's tough to say. I, I think that uh, you know, the, the, the expectations that we have now in terms of identifying customers and due diligence, I mean, that's not going to go away because that is bedrock, you know, AML compliance. Uh, but, you know, could it, could it be changed into more of a, uh, to be more risk-based than it really is right now? Because it's not that risk-based right now, I don't, I don't no, think. No, I agree. And I think that that... That really is connected with the de-risking problem yeah. because de-risking, to a large extent, is occurring and has occurred because of the costs involved in in doing technical compliance. Right. So if there is some you know easing on the technical compliance part in terms of how regulators look at AML compliance with you know a corresponding increase in you know doing investigations within the priorities then at least I, I can see theoretically how that might actually help with de-risking. That was, I think, a point that yeah. Craig Tim, who moderated our right. panel, right. Uh, made this morning. I hadn't really thought about that a whole lot. You know, yeah. Initially, I thought, you know, maybe maybe not. On the other hand, though, I, I think another uh, a driver of de-risking is just sort of the whole reputation risk area. Right. And, and, you know, apart from the cost, it's just the idea of being connected with uh, an industry that, you know, perhaps unfairly uh, has been, you know, put into the high-risk bucket. Yeah. And, and, and the result of that is they have a hard time getting bank accounts and maintaining This is a, a, a little curveball, but you can definitely hit this one. Um, I was thinking today, it's been 30 years since the Civil Safe Harbor was crafted. Wow. I know because we were in, both of us were involved yeah, yeah, yeah. in that process. Wow, yeah. So 30 years <laughs> later, uh, it's, it's generally stood the test of time, yep. I've got to say. And it definitely has helped institutions to make decisions that you're going to file as opposed to not, not because... They're over-filing, defensive filing it. We have a little bit of information. We may not have enough. What's your take, both from the government standpoint, where you were for many years, and now as uh, representing clients in the private sector about the value proposition of the civil safe harbor? Oh, well, I think it's off the charts. Yeah. I, I think if you take that away, or if you were to, to, to weaken it, I, I don't think you could reasonably expect financial institutions to file, uh, number one, as many SARs, but also the kind of good SARs with, with, with robust uh, narratives in them that are the most useful to law enforcement. And, and I, you know, I just think intuitively that, that when banks do that, you know, they are relying on the safe harbor. Because you think about it, 
what a what a uh, counterintuitive thing it is to do to file a SAR. Right. I mean, you're essentially turning your your, your customers over to, to, to the feds, to law enforcement. Yeah. I mean, what business normally does that? Right. But but you know, in our industry, we do do that. You know, and and you know, part of it's because it's required. But I think also people recognize that you know, if we don't do this, then we're not going to be able to maintain financial integrity right. both within our institution. And, and more broadly, so no, to me, it's it's absolutely essential, and you know, it, it has, as you know, it's been it was it challenged chipped, a few times, yeah, yeah, chipped away at a little bit, yep, particularly yep. in the beginning, yep. you know, but for the most part, it has stood the test of time, right. and I think we're all better for it. Yeah, I will I will take that as a partial legacy for having the foresight with talking to all of you guys at the time, saying we don't want a good faith exception. Oh, yeah. Because that was going to result in so much litigation, we were able to get that out of there. And that's obviously helped us being both as broad and helpful as it's been. Let me end on this. And I think we, I've done a couple of podcasts with you over the years since you've left the government. I think even while you were there. But one of the things I'm always curious about is folks like yourself, Rick, and others that have left the government to go into the private sector. Uh, and you talked about this before, but what's for you has been some of the biggest eye-openers about now representing clients that before, not that you prosecuted them, but obviously you had to be different in terms of enforcement mentality. And you, you worked, I mean, you have the, uh, an excellent reputation of working with institutions, even if you had to penalize them. But what's been the biggest, besides the obvious, that you're on a different side now for you over the course of the time you've been in the private sector? What's the biggest difference? I, I have a better appreciation of what happens in the trenches. Mm -hmm. And when I was in the government, you know, I'd come out to events like this and, you know, say whatever I had to say. And, you know, people come up to me afterwards. This happened to me so many times. Right. They say, you know, you sound pretty reasonable, but let me tell you about that examiner. Right. You know, yeah. And I would just go, oh, God, here we go again. You know? Exactly. Because these examiners, they didn't work for me. Right, right, you know? right. And uh, I, I felt like even when I was in the government that I was, I was hearing this enough from enough different places to realize that there was something to this right. you know so now I'm in I'm in the private sector I'm advising banks that you know typically I'm advising banks that are undergoing rough examination sure, right, right. And, and or defending enforcement actions you know and and I see a lot a lot a lot of that and I don't I don't mean to disparage bank examiners I mean right. they have a job to do it's a really hard job yep. and for the most part they do it well yep but but I see an awful lot of attention to minutiae and again, kind of tying back to the priorities again, you know, banks who are who are beaten up pretty bad, you know, not necessarily enforcement actions, but, you know, MRAs, uh, you know, supervisory actions, things that aren't public, but they still require a ton of work right. to address. And, and I look at it and I say, you know, this doesn't really seem like it's really that important. I mean, I've seen banks criticized, for example, because they may have decided not to file SARS on, you know, certain low dollar transactions right. that just don't seem all that important, right. you know. So I think that's probably the the biggest eye opener. I, I don't I don't think I was you know had blinders on when no, I worked no. for the government, right. but I think I see things you know more clearly now because now I've seen both sides of it. Dan, thanks for your time. Thanks for your quick insight on the priorities, and we're going to continue to follow this obviously because the proof is always in the pudding, right? So when the regs are final, now we'll know, and then we won't know for a while how the regulators are supervising that. And then we also won't know until studies are done on BSA value, threshold issues, law enforcement needs, all that kind of stuff. So it's gonna, it's gonna be a while, but 
it does keep us all engaged for probably the next couple of years. Yes, it will. <laughs> Thanks, man. All right. Thanks for listening to another episode of AML Conversations, brought to you by AML RightSource. To make sure you're staying up to date with what's going on in the industry, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast to get the latest episode.